the book of Genesis chapter 10. When you find that, why don't you stand to your feet with me and let's read God's word together. Genesis chapter 10 and in verse 6. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Put, and Canaan. So we're dealing with one of Noah's sons, Ham. And he has, his oldest son is Cush. And then we go down to verse number 8. And Cush begat Nimrod. He became, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalni in the land of Shinar. And then if you will go to chapter 11 with me. And the whole earth was of one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And remember back to verse uh, 10, that's where uh, Nimrod is. So it came to pass, they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one and they have all one language and this they began to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language and they, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off to build the city. And therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth and from there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Thank you, and you may be seated. Chapter 10 is known in your Bible as the table of nations. And in it we have the record of Noah's descendants when they left the ark and scattered across the face of the earth here his three sons, their wives, their children, and their children's children, and so on, as the time, as the ages went on. And they, they didn't scatter far, but they scattered somewhat according to what we know about them. The ark, of course, had landed on Mount Ararat, which is in the current nation of Armenia, which is the northern part or north of Turkey, if you're thinking about the world map. And so they began to drift to the east and to the south, and all three families went those directions. And they ended up on the plain of Shinar, the Bible says. They were looking for the most reliable, the most desirable place to live, good weather, good pasturage for their animals. So they're traveling looking for an ideal place where they can settle down. 
the plain of Shinar. Now, I remember when I took World History Civilization 101 and, and World History, Secular History, that they called the plain of Shinar, the secular term is the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent. And you can still find that on the maps of the world. It's in the area of Syria or maybe the area of Mesopotamia and today's Iraq and Syria. If you wanted to go there on an airplane flight, you would go to Syria or you would go somewhere in Iraq. In chapter 10 and verse 1, we read again this word generations. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. And for those of you who were not here when we looked at this before, go back, if you will, to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Just turn back there and you will see in verse number 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that word is toledoth, toledoth, the Hebrew term. And that term means a record of those generations. Literally, it means generations. And so the book of Genesis is recognized because it has these toledoths, these breaks every now and then it says these are the generations of and so I believe according to Genesis 2 and 4 that God himself literally wrote those the account of chapter 1 because he was the only one there these are eyewitness accounts the Toledos are eyewitness accounts and then if you'll go over then to chapter 5 and verse 1 and this is the book of the generations of Adam. And I think that Adam wrote chapter 2, 3, and 4. He was the only one who was an eyewitness. He wrote that account down. Now, I don't mean, I'm not saying that Moses didn't write the Bible here. We know Moses wrote the Pentateuch. But somebody perhaps gave Moses these records that he wrote then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Come to chapter 5, the book of the generations of Adam. And so Adam has written the previous uh, chapters there, the previous facts, he, he noted them. Chapter 6 and verse 9, you find another Toledoth, the generations of Noah. Who could write better about the flood than uh, Noah? And he gave an account and it was passed down. Moses, under inspiration, wrote it. Now we come to chapter 10 here in chapter 11, and we find in chapter 10 and verse 1, another Toledoth, another record written by the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, because they're going to tell us what happened after the flood was over and after their father passed away. And so we have in chapter 10 this table of the nations. Three sons go out, and from them in the next several hundred years, we have the 70 different nations and people groups are formed that are listed here. Now, very important, listen to me on this. The human race, the entire human race came from one set of parents. That would be Adam and Eve. Is there any other option you can think of if you believe the Bible? No, of course not. And then you go 10 generations down the line and you find Noah's three sons. And all of the human race can trace their lineage back Everybody in this room is a descendant of either Shem, Ham, Japheth, and you go back 10 more generations, everybody in the room is a descendant of Adam and Eve. 
And so we have one race of people. That's so important for God's people to know today. Everything in our culture, sadly, has become racialized, hasn't it? And it's race, 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 race. And it's not talking about the Darlington 500 either. It's race, race, race. And you know what? There are no races in the Bible but one, the human race. And that race came from Adam and Eve through Shem, Ham, and Japheth. If you are a racist, you do not believe the Bible. Racism came along as a result of evolution, believe it or not. And the whole concept was that the evolutionist divides, divides humanity into races. You know what the races are? They're subspecies in the process of evolving to a higher race. And whether you're white or black or, or yellow or whatever color you may be, you're a subspecies. And so that pits people against each other instead of thinking we have a common father and mother and a common source, then uh, we have different sources because this is part of the evolutionary story that they give us. And so the concept is not in your Bible about races. You see here, every one of us can go back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11 and three brothers. You have three brothers. Well, three brothers that come from Mr. and Mrs. Noah are not three different races. They're three brothers, aren't they? Same race. All of us originated back there with them. And so we come down to chapter 10 and verse 5. Let me show you just, I'm, I've got a lot of introductory stuff, but it's really important for you to know your Bible. In chapter 10 and verse 5, these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands after their tongue, their family, and their nations. Look at how God divided the people according to their language, tongue, and their families, and after their nations. He didn't divide them according to races, not even mentioned. It is languages and families and nations, and the nation is defined, of course, by its borders. Language, border, family would be the way that God chose to divide the, the, the peoples of the earth. Now, go with me, that's talking about the descendants of Japheth. Go with me down to verse 20, and let's look at the descendants of Ham, the second of Noah's sons. And how did God divide his sons? After their families, and after their tongues, and after their countries, and in their nations, same way. And let's go down, if you will, to verse number 31. These are the sons of Shem, the third brother. How did God divide those people? After their families, their tongues, their lands, and their nations. God divides people by, their, by those things. Now, many make the division that you see here, and particularly go up to verse 25, and you're introduced to a fellow named Eber. Eber is the man, his name is the basis of Hebrew. You can see Eber, Hebrew. The Hebrew word, the word Hebrew came from Eber here. And he had two sons. One of them was named Pelag. And it says, in his days was the earth divided. And boy, people love to speculate about what does that mean? 
How was the earth divided under Peleg? And there's this uh, fable, this legend that in his days, the earth, the continents split apart. And the shape now of the world uh, geographically is what happened here in those days. And uh, I don't believe that account at all. In fact, I believe verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31, that God didn't, he's not talking about dividing the continents. He's dividing about the people into his way of languages and so on. And it really comes to full fruition in chapter 11 when God divides all the nations of the world according to their languages and he scatters them out because up until now, they've refused to scatter as God had told them to do. Now, so this, this legend came about because Peleg's name actually means division. And so in his days, the earth was divided. Was it divided according to the continents or was it divided according to geographically, physically? Or was it divided as God did by languages ultimately? Now, when, was, when did the continents appear? And we don't know. We can at best speculate. But the creationist viewpoint based upon the Bible is that the continents were formed in the flood when all those fountains of the deep exploded and all that magma and water and lava and heat came out, that it actually split through the crust of the earth, and therefore you have the uh, something like the current configuration of the landmass. And there was less land after, and there was more ocean, because those great quantities of water that came out of the depths of the earth and that fell from that vapor canopy that was suspended above the earth until the flood, all that water came down to the earth and it had to go somewhere. And where did it go? And I've used, I used to ask myself that and I studied what the creationist scientists say about it and I certainly can accept their view. They believe that that water level arose after the flood and that in the far north and the south at the poles, it began to freeze. And so we have the polar caps because the temperature is so, so low at those extremes from the equator. And uh, then it began to melt. And I, I used to hear, well, I was taught in biology or whatever, geography or something in college. I was taught that, uh, you know, we had these ice ages that went on for thousands and thousands of years. You probably were taught that in school as well. And if you can look at the theory that comes out of what the Bible teaches, then you could say, wait a minute, those ice ages didn't have to last all those years. That ice froze after the, uh, after the flood, all that vapor in the air and so on. Those glaciers then began to melt as they came down. You go up to Canada, go up in the northern part of the country, those glaciers came down, way down almost to the U.S. border in the north. And you can see evidence of it in the scarring of the rocks. They created gorges. They created underground lakes like we have out in Montana. And so uh, you don't have to accept the atheist uh, explanation of everything that happened in the world. Put God at the center of it. Take the Bible at its word. And you know what? You'll find there's a logical explanation for just about everything the Bible says. 
Now, having said all that, I want you to look in chapter 10, verse 8, we have a great leader who now emerges. His name is Nimrod. Nimrod. The first world dictator is Nimrod. He's Noah's great-grandson through his son Ham, through his son Cush. And Nimrod means one word, rebel. Right there in the margin of your Bible, circle his name and write out there somewhere, rebel. He is the world's first prototype of a rebel. He is a rebel against Almighty God. From his name, it would appear probably since his daddy named him rebel, think what that does to a little boy. <laughs> You name him rebel, well, you pretty well have set a course for his life, haven't you? And it would appear that Cush named him and trained him from his childhood to rebel against God because it appears that Cush himself was a rebel against God. In chapter 10 and verse number 9, it describes his reputation. He was a mighty hunter, a mighty hunter. And in those early days, it would not be hard. It's not a stretch of the imagination to believe that those animals that were on the ark left the ark. They began to scatter, but probably stayed somewhat near human beings that they may have even depended on somewhat. And that they reproduced themselves and in process of time, because several hundred years have elapsed here, maybe 500 years, and as that time has elapsed, we see that, that men emerged who were known as great hunters. They did it for the protection of their people, and they did it perhaps for food as well. And so we have Nimrod made himself a reputation as a great hunter. He was a mighty hunter in the face of God, if you will. We still use that term, don't we? We say... He's in my face. What do we mean? Somebody is pushing you. They're being aggressive with you. They're, they're defying you. They're opposing you. And so the word, uh, even itself, explains the, the attitude of this man. And he goes out and he begins to search for other men. He's not only a hunter of animals, but he's a hunter of men. He begins to search for men and he persuades them to follow him and to obey his will, his plan. And so he emerges as the first of the world's great leaders. He is the first world dictator, if you will. Verse 10 says he founded the city of Babel, which later becomes the city of Babylon. Same word, Babel, Babylon. And he also founded other cities. It was like a a, a complex of cities that he began to found and he put them together, this confederation that he formed against Almighty God. And this is not in your Bible, but it's in secular history that he married a woman named Semiramis. And she was a pagan woman. She did not believe in God. She was an idolater. She worshiped the sun, the moon, and the stars, which the early pagans worshiped. And so out of that, we have these mystery religions where the people worship the sun, the moon, and the stars as representations of spirits that they know about. So we have 
his wife is the founder, if you will, of astrology and paganism, the pagan religions of old. And so we look back today to Babylon and to Babel, and we say, that's the birthplace of paganism, idolatry, uh, of, of uh, worship of, of the planets, of nature itself. Romans 1 describes it like this. They, they worship the creation or the creature more than they worship the creator himself. And so he gathers these people around him. Now remember, God has told them to scatter. Go to chapter number nine. In verse number one, God blessed Noah and his sons. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Scatter across the face of the earth. And he refuses to do it. Instead, he gathers men. He hunts for people who will follow him and form this confederation against Almighty God and worship creation instead of the Creator. And so now we come to chapter 11 and verse 1. And it tells us the whole earth <clears throat> is of one language and one speech. And so everybody speaks the same language. And they begin to gather there in Babel. And he says to them in verse number three, he said, let's start a brick making industry. And so they said, let's make brick and let's burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for their stone and slime. And the word slime there came from the idea of these pits, these asphalt pits that they have there in that area. And so they would burn these brick and use the bitumen or asphalt that's in that area and they began to build these buildings. There's many of those towers that archaeologists have found. This was not even the, the, the only one. In verse 4, and they said, let's build a city. And God had said, no, you scatter. They said, oh no, we're not going to scatter. We're going to stay here. We're going to build a city. And then they said, whose top may reach into heaven. Whose top may reach unto heaven or to the heavens and they built the city and then they built this tower a religious structure a city is a political structure the tower is a religious structure and those towers are called ziggurats and they have stairs that go up around the outside of them and usually a flat place on the top where they would go and they would worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. They would get a better view. They weren't trying to build a structure where they could actually physically climb into heaven. I used to think that when I heard that story as a little boy, but that's not what they were doing. They were too sophisticated for that. They were building a tower erected in the honor of the pagan gods, and they would go there and they would worship a blatant defiance of God. And their purpose Look there in verse number four. Their purpose is, let us make us a name. They wanted to be known for a great, great achievement, even if it was in defiance of Almighty God. And so they built this, the birth of paganism, of the sun, worship of sun and moon and stars, the beginning of idolatry, of worshiping something other than Almighty God. Let's look at God's reaction to all of that. In verse number seven, the Trinity hold a council. And God, they get together and they say, let us, circle the word us in your Bible, who is us? 
It's not I or me. It's not God speaking singularly. He is speaking, or the Word of God is speaking here using all three members of the Trinity, I believe, that us refers to. Let us go down there. You know, normally God allows nations, God allows people to pursue their ways without any supernatural interference. Normally, God doesn't intervene in every affair of man, but he held this divine council, this meeting of the Trinity. And he says, let us go down there because what they're doing is so defiant. If we allow them to do this, then absolutely they will have thwarted the very plan that we have had for mankind. And so God came down. And the Lord confounded their language in verse number seven so that they would not understand what each other's speech. God's way of scattering them, since they refused to scatter, we're going to give everybody a, a different language. And so construction crew that's out there building the tower. And one of them looks up at the, one, at the guy above him and he says, uh, how many bricks do you need? And the guy up above said, what did you say? And he said, how many bricks do you need? He said, that doesn't make any sense. What's wrong with you? That's gobbledygook you're speaking to me. And chaos broke out because nobody could understand each other all these different people were trying to communicate and they couldn't do it. And so the people that spoke my language, I found people I could communicate with. And over here, you found people you could communicate with. And we went off and we scattered at the hand and the direction of God. We scattered and we scattered to be with the people with whom we could communicate because language is one of the most basic things about our human existence. It's one of the things the evolutionist, by the way, cannot explain. You'll never hear an evolutionist talk about language. There's no evolutionary explanation for language. It's God-given. Uh, every now and then somebody will teach a, you know, a dolphin to make a sound when you do certain things. They'll condition a a, a dog or another animal to do and oh look at that dog he can talk yeah he's got one word vocabulary and uh, no there's a gap between mankind and animals that will never be bridged and it's called language there's a part of our brain that's there that no other species on earth has and it all God said I'm just going to give you different languages and different tongues, not different races, not different religions. I'm going to give you different languages and I'm going to scatter you according to that. You know, and this is a side note, but it should concern every American citizen that we're having this multicultural, multilinguistic emphasis and acceptance in our country because if you want to divide people, teach them different languages. Have a bunch of different languages in a culture. The one thing that unifies people more than any other thing is their language, their common tongue. I was in uh, Detroit a few years ago and I could not believe it. I drove through Dearborn, Michigan. All the street signs were in Arabic. 
all the stores were named in Arabic. Some of them had, had English as a subtitle. If you go to Miami, then it will be Spanish. If you go other places, it'll be a different language. And the more sub-languages we have, the less unity we're in all probability going to have. Language is the great unifier. So God sent these various groups out. This was his plan. Now, having taught all of that to you as quickly as I could tonight, I want to show you an application that makes it very, very relevant. Nimrod is a picture or a type or a shadow. We use that kind of language when we talk about our Bibles and particularly when we take an Old Testament subject and we use it to represent something in the New Testament. So go to the book of Colossians with me for a moment and I'll show you that what I mean and it's a, it's a scriptural idea. Colossians chapter two and verse number 17. Well, verse 16, let's start in 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of the holy, uh, holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. A shadow of things to come. What is a shadow? Well, I looked at Mr. Merriam-Webster's dictionary. There's the definition. The sh a shadow is the dark figure that's cast upon a surface but by a body, a solid object of some kind that intercepts the rays from a source of light. And so you can't tell it, but I got this light coming down on me from up here and I put my hand right there. There's a shadow of my hand, a representation of my hand. The solid hand blocks the light source and there's the dark spot on the desk here in front of me, a shadow. Now, the light is the Word of God. The body here, the solid object, is the Antichrist. The shadow is Nimrod. You follow me? He's a shadow. You look at a shadow, it looks an awful lot like the real thing. Not fully like the real, but it certainly resembles the real thing. And I look at Nimrod and I study him and he is a shadow of things to come, i.e. the Antichrist. He looks like the Antichrist. How is he like the Antichrist? He's the first world dictator. He is a rebel who is in absolute defiance against Almighty God. And so these shadows are all through your Bible. For example, the Passover is a shadow or a type of the cross. It, you, in, in the Passover story, you see the lamb being sacrificed, the blood being applied, etc. Now, also the word type, we use it. And Nimrod is a type of the Antichrist. A type is a person or thing as in the New Te Old Testament believed to foreshadow something in the New Testament. And so we study and we look at these types in the Old Testament. The lamb is the type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the importance of Nimrod, 
is that he is a foreshadowing and a type of the Antichrist who is yet to come, but who the Bible predicts, another world dictator. Today, there's a powerful, powerful movement that's sweeping across our world. It's called by various names. The globalism is probably the best name for it. That the nations dissolve gradually. They do away with their borders. They ultimately do away with their governments. And we sort of evolve into this one world state of a government, a military, an economy, and so on, that the only way to eliminate war, the only way to eliminate competition and hatred between peoples is to unify them. Just like Genesis chapter 10, bring them all together. But God's plan has never been to unify the world. It never will be. God's plan is Languages, nations, countries, peoples. He doesn't want the world to get together because when one group of people, an elite group of evil people get together, they concentrate all the power and there's a few people at the top who really enjoy their lives and the rest of us are basically slaves and subservient to them. Now, that is happening across the world today. You know that's happening. If you're informed at all, you can see the shadows of that. You can see the type of that. You can see that the world is moving that way. The UN, that's its stated purpose, to try to bring the world together and eliminate war to create peace. And it should concern all of us. Because you know what? The Bible predicts that this is going to happen. This is prophecy being fulfilled. You and I, in my opinion, are living in the midst of prophecy. Please don't miss it. Don't be blind to it. We are seeing things come together just as our Bible predicted that those things would come together. COVID was the beginning of it, I think, in any real way. And the man who wrote the Great Reset, this uh, Klaus Schwab, this German professor who's heading up this Davos group, this man said that COVID gives us an open door, an opportunity, a window of opportunity where we can move in and try to eliminate some of these problems that the world has had right now. And you know, the World Health Organization jumped in, the CDC, the US government, the United Nations. And in every case, they gained a little bit of control over our lives. They still are gaining control over our lives. They, they still use fear to motivate people. And now we have open borders. And I don't wanna to get too far into the events of the day, but I want you to see it. Their goal is a world without borders. Why doesn't the United States enforce its border down there in Texas and Mexico? Why doesn't it? Because the people who are making the decisions are globalists. They're not trying to protect the people of America. They're thinking of a one world 
global state someday. They state that in some of their literature. And what about the energy policy? Well, if you control the energy, you control everything. Business, government, medicine, healthcare, everything. And what about population control? Do you know what one of the key players with Klaus Schwab in his book, The Great Reset, said? He said that the ideal number of people on the planet for sustainability, don't you love that word? This guy who helped with Klaus Schwab, he says the ideal population level for planet Earth is about one billion. One billion. We've got about seven and a half now. He says we can't sustain that. Well, what's the option? The option. I guess you get rid, uh, you get rid of a few billion, huh? That's the only option I could think of. When it comes to our economy, globalism. Now, you've all heard of the ESG scores, have you not? And the ESG score someday will determine if you can borrow money. And what about communication? And so we hear about people being silenced and canceled, and they can't get their message out because powerful elitists don't want that message out. Now, you say you sound like you're a conspiracy theorist. I, I guess I am, but I need some new ones because all the old ones came true. <laughs> and now we're seeing our government weaponized 80,000 IRS agents. What is driving all of this? It may sound like I am a conspiracy buff. I don't know. But I read my Bible, and I know that Satan's goal from Genesis chapter 10 up until Revelation 17, 18, and 19 is one thing. He wants to control the world. If you will bow down, Jesus, and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And that's never changed. And it all started in Genesis chapter 10. If you want to know the rest of the story, go home tonight, open your Bible, cut off the TV, read Revelation 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, and you'll know the whole story. Stand to your feet with me. <laughs>